Chapter Five of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Ireland from the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book Two, by Thomas Darcy McGee. Chapter Five: Reign of Malachi the Second and Rivalry of Brian. Melaglene, or Malachi the Second, fifth in direct descent from Malachi the First, the founder of the southern Hyneal dynasty, was in his thirtieth year when, A.D. 780, he succeeded to the monarchy. He had just achieved the mighty victory of Tara when the death of his predecessor opened his way to the throne, and seldom did more brilliant dawn usher in a more eventful day than that which fate held in store for this victor king. None of his predecessors, not even his ancestor and namesake, had ever been able to use the high language of his noble proclamation, when he announced on his accession, Let all the Irish who are suffering servitude in the land of the stranger return home to their respective houses, and enjoy themselves in gladness and in peace. In obedience to this edict, and the power to enforce it, established by the victory at Tara, two thousand captives, including the King of Leinster and the Prince of Aliac, were returned to their homes. The hardest task of every Ardrig of this and the previous century had been to circumscribe the ambition of the kings of Cashel within provincial bounds. Whoever ascended the southern throne, whether the warlike Felim or the learned Cormac, we have seen the same policy adopted by them all. The descendants of Heber had tired of the long ascendancy of the race of Harriman, and the desertion of Terra, by making that ascendancy still more strikingly provincial, had increased their antipathy. It was a struggle for supremacy between North and South, a contest of two geographical parties, an effort to efface the real or fancied dependency of one half of the island on the will of the other. The southern Hyneal dynasty, springing up as a third power upon the Methian bank of the Shannon, and balancing itself between the contending parties, might perhaps have given a new centre to the whole system. Malachi the Second was in the most favourable position possible to have done so, had he not had to contend with a rival, his equal in battle and superior in council, in the person of Brian, the son of Kennedy of Kinkora. The rise to sovereign rank of the house of Kinkora, the O'Briens, is one of the most striking episodes of the tenth century. Descending, like most of the leading families of the south, from Olild, the clan Dalgais had long been excluded from the throne of Cashel, by successive coalitions of their elder brethren, the Eugenians. Lachna and Lorcan, the grandfather and father of Kennedy, intrepid and able men, had strengthened their tribe by wise and vigorous measures, so that the former was able to claim the succession, apparently with success. Kennedy had himself been a claimant for the same honour, the alternate provision in the will of Olild, against Kelicon Cashel, A.D. 940-2, but at the convention held at Glenworth, on the river Fuchion, for the selection of king, the aged mother of Kelicon addressed his rival in a quatrain, beginning, Kennedy, cuss, revere the law, which induced him to abandon his pretensions. This prince, usually spoken of by the bards as the chaste Kennedy, died in the year 950, leaving behind him four or five out of the twelve sons, with whom he had been blessed. Most of the others had fallen in Danish battles, three in the same campaign, 943, and probably in the same field. There appear in after scenes Mahon, who became king of Cashel, 
Ectirna, who was chief of Thomond, under Mahon, Marcan, an ecclesiastic, and Brian, born in 941, the Benjamin of the household. Mahon proved himself, as prince and captain, every way worthy of his inheritance. He advanced from victory to victory over his enemies, foreign and domestic. In 960 he claimed the throne of Munster, which claim he enforced by royal visitation five years later. In the latter year he rescued Clan Macnoise from the Danes, and in 968 defeated the same enemy, with a loss of several thousand men at Silcoid. This great blow he followed up by the sack of Limerick, from which he bore off a large quantity of gold and silver and jewels. In these, and in all his expeditions, from a very early age, he was attended by Brian, to whom he acted not only as a brother and prince, but as a tutor in arms. Fortune had accompanied him in all his undertakings. He had expelled his most intractable rival, Molloy, son of Bran, lord of Desmond. His rule was acknowledged by the Northmen of Dublin and Cork, who opened their fortresses to him, and served under his banner. He carried all the hostages of Munster to his house, which had never before worn so triumphant an aspect. But family greatness begets family pride, and pride begets envy and hatred. The Eugenian families, who now found themselves overshadowed by the brilliant career of the sons of Kennedy, conspired against the life of Mahon, who, from his too confiding nature, fell easily into their trap. Molloy, son of Brian, by the advice of Ivar, the Danish lord of Limerick, proposed to meet Mahon in friendly conference at the house of Donovan, a Eugenian chief, whose wraith was at Bury on the river Maig. The safety of each person was guaranteed by the Bishop of Cork, the mediator on the occasion. Mahon proceeded unsuspiciously to the conference, where he was suddenly seized by order of his treacherous host, and carried into the neighboring mountains of Nakinrioin. Here a small force, placed for the purpose by the conspirators, had orders promptly to dispatch their victim. But the foul deed was not done unwitnessed. Two priests of the Bishop of Cork followed the prince, who, when arrested, snatched up the gospel of St. Barry, on which Molloy was to have sworn his fealty. As the swords of the assassins were aimed at his heart, he held up the gospel for a protection, and his blood spouting out stained the sacred scriptures. The priests, taking up the blood-stained volume, fled to their bishop, spreading the horrid story as they went. The venerable successor of St. Barry wept bitterly, and uttered a prophecy concerning the future fate of the murderers, a prophecy which was very speedily fulfilled. This was in the year 976, three or four years before the Battle of Terra and the accession of Malachi. When the news of his noble-hearted brother's murder was brought to Brian at Kinkora, he was seized with the most violent grief. His favorite harp was taken down, and he sang the death-song of Mahon, recounting all the glorious actions of his life. His anger flashed out through his tears as he wildly chanted, My heart shall burst within my breast, unless I avenge this great king. They shall forfeit life for this foul deed, or I must perish by a violent death. But the climax of this lament was that Mahon had not fallen in battle behind the shelter of his shield, rather than trust in the treacherous words of Donovan. Brian was now in his thirty-fifth year, was married, and had several children. Morog, his eldest, was able to bear arms, and shared in his ardor and ambition. His first effort, says an old chronicle, was directed against Donovan's allies, the Danes of Limerick, and he slew Ivar their king and two of his sons. These conspirators, foreseeing their fate, had retired into the holy isle of Scattery, 
but Brian slew them between the horns of the altar. For this violation of the sanctuary, considering his provocation, he was little blamed. He next turned his rage against Donovan, who had called to his aid the Danish townsmen of Desmond. Brian, says the analyst of Innisfallen, gave them battle where Olaf and his Danes, and Donovan and his Irish forces, were cut off. After that battle, Brian sent a challenge to Malloy, of Desmond, according to the custom of that age, to meet him in arms near Macroom, where the usual coalition, Danes and Irish, were against him. He completely routed the enemy, and his son Morag, then but a lad, killed the murderer of his uncle Mahon with his own hand. Malloy was buried on the north side of the mountain where Mahon was murdered and interred. On Mahon the southward sun shone full and fair, but on the grave of his assassin the black shadow of the northern sky rested always. Such was the tradition which all Munster piously believed. After this victory over Malloy, son of Brian, A.D. 978, Brian was universally acknowledged king of Munster, and until Malachi had won the Battle of Terra, was justly considered the first Irish captain of his age. Malachi, in the first year of his reign, having received the hostages of the Danes of Dublin, having liberated the Irish prisoners and secured the unity of his own territory, had his attention drawn, naturally enough, towards Brian's movements. Whether Brian had refused him homage, or that his revival of the old claim to the half-kingdom was his offence, or from whatever immediate cause, Malachi marched southwards, enforcing homage as he went. Entering Thomond, he plundered the Dalcassians, and marching to the mounded Adair, where under an old oak the kings of Thomond had long been inaugurated, he caused it to be dug from the earth with its roots, and cut into pieces. This act of Malachi's certainty bespeaks an embittered and aggressive spirit, and the provocation must, indeed, have been grievous to palliate so barbarous an action. But we are not informed what the provocation was. At the time Brian was in Ossory enforcing his tribute. The next year we find him seizing the person of Gilipatric, lord of Ossory, and soon after he burst into Meath, avenging with fire and sword the wanton destruction of his ancestral oak. Thus were these two powerful princes openly embroiled with each other. We have no desire to dwell on all the details of their struggle, which continued for fully twenty years. About the year 987, Brian was practically king of half-Ireland, and having the power, though not the title, he did not suffer any part of it to lie waste. His activity was incapable of exhaustion. In Ossory, in Leinster, in Connaught, his voice and his arm were felt everywhere. But a divided authority was of necessity so favourable to invasion, that the Danish power began to loom up to its old proportions. Citric, with the silken beard, one of the ablest of Danish leaders, was then at Dublin, and his occasional incursions were so formidable, that they produced, what probably nothing else could have done, an alliance between Brian and Malachi, which lasted for three years, and was productive of the best consequences. Thus, in 997, they imposed their yoke on Dublin, taking hostages and jewels from the foreigners. Reinforcements arriving from the north, the indomitable Danes proceeded to plunder Leinster, but were routed by Brian and Malachi at Glenmama, in Wicklow, with the loss of six thousand men and all their chief captains. Immediately after this victory the two kings, according to the annals, entered into Dublin, and the fort thereof, and there remained seven knights, and at their departure took all the gold, silver, hangings, and other precious things that were there with them, burnt the town, 
broke down the fort, and banished Citric from thence. A.D. 999. The next three years of Brian's life are the most complex in his career. After resting a night in Mieth with Malachi, he proceeded with his forces towards Armagh, nominally on a pilgrimage, but really, as it would seem, to extend his party. He remained in the sacred city a week, and presented ten ounces of gold at the cathedral altar. The Archbishop Marion received him with the distinction due to so eminent a guest, and a record of his visit, in which he is styled Imperator of the Irish, was entered in the book of St. Patrick. He, however, got no hostages in the north, but on his march southward he learned that the Danes had returned to Dublin, were rebuilding the city and fort, and were ready to offer submission and hostages to him, while refusing both to Malachi. Here Brian's eagerness for supremacy misled him. He accepted the hostages, joined the foreign forces to his own, and even gave his daughter in marriage to Citric of the silken beard. Immediately he broke with Malachi, and with his new allies and son-in-law, marched into Mieth in hostile array. Malachi, however, stood his defence, attacked and defeated Brian's advance guard of Danish horse, and the latter, unwilling, apparently, to push matters to extremes, retired as he came, without battle or hostage or spoil of any kind. But his design of securing the monarchy was not for an instant abandoned, and by combined diplomacy and force he effected his end. His whole career would have been incomplete without the last and highest conquest over every rival. Patiently but surely he had gathered influence and authority, by arms, by gifts, by connections on all sides. He had propitiated the chief families of Connaught by his first marriage with Mora, daughter of O'Hane, and his second marriage with Duchalve, daughter of O'Connor. He had obtained one of the daughters of Godwin, the powerful Earl of Kent, for his second son, had given a daughter to the Prince of Scots, and another to the Danish King of Dublin. Malachi, in diplomatic skill, in foresight, and in tenacity of purpose, was greatly inferior to Brian, though in personal gallantry and other princely qualities, every way his equal. He was of a hospitable, outspoken, enjoying disposition, as we gather from many characteristic anecdotes. He is spoken of as being generally computed the best horseman in those parts of Europe, and as one who delighted to ride a horse that was never broken, handled, or ridden until the age of seven years. From an ancient story, which represents him as giving his revenues for a year to one of the court poets, and then fighting him with a headless staff to compel the poet to return them, it would appear that his good humour and profusion were equal to his horsemanship. Finding Brian's influence still on the increase west of the Shannon, Malachi, in the year of our Lord 1000, threw two bridges across the Shannon, one at Athlone, the other at the present Lansborough. This he did with the consent and assistance of O'Connor, but the issue was, as usual, he made the bridges, and Brian profited by them. While Malachi was at Athlona superintending the work, Brian arrived with a great force recruited from all quarters, except Ulster, including Danish men at armour. At Athlona was held the conference so memorable in our annals, in which Brian gave his rival the alternative of a pitched battle within a stated time, or abdication. According to the southern analysts, first a month, and afterwards a year, were allowed the monarch to make his choice. At the expiration of the time, Brian marched into Mieth, and encamped at Terra, where Malachi, having vainly endeavoured to secure the alliance of the northern Hainial in the interval, came and submitted to Brian without safeguard or surety. 
the unmade monarch was accompanied by a guard of twelve-score horsemen, and on his arrival proceeded straight to the tent of his successor. Here the rivals contended in courtesy, as they had often done in arms, and when they separated, Brian, as Lord Paramount, presented Malachi as many horses as he had horsemen in his train when he came to visit him. This event happened in the year 1001, when Brian was in his sixtieth and Malachi in his fifty-third year. There were present in the assembly all the princes and chiefs of the Irish, except the prince of Aliak, and the lords of Oriel, Ulidia, Tyroen, and Tyrconnell, who were equally unwilling to assist Malachi or to acknowledge Brian. What is still more remarkable is, the presence in this national assembly of the Danish lords of Dublin, Carmen, Wexford, Waterford, and Cork, whom Brian at this time was trying hard to conciliate by gifts and alliance. End of chapter 5